0: Chapter Seventeen of Snowdrift A Story of the Land of the Strong Cold by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. Chapter Seventeen In the Cabin of the Belle for two weeks Brent and Snowdrift were together each day from dawn until dark leaving Joe Pete to work the claim on the copper mine they burned into the gravel on a creek that gave promise and while their fire slowly thawed out the muck they hunted when at a depth of 4 feet they had not struck a color Brent gave it up no use he said one day as he tossed the worthless pebbles from his pan "'If there was anything here, we'd have found at least a trace. "'I'm going to hit down the river and have a look at the Copper Mountains.' "'Take me with you,' cried the girl eagerly. "'How long will you be gone?' "'I wish I could,' smiled Brent. "'But Joe Pete and I will be gone two weeks, a month, maybe longer. "'It depends on what we find.' if we were only married what a great trip it would be but never mind sweetheart we've got a good many trips coming years and years of them but that isn't now objected the girl what will i do all the while you are gone each morning i hurry here as fast as i can and each evening i am sorry when the darkness comes and i must leave you the man drew her close ''Yes, darling,'' he whispered, ''I understand. The hours I spend away from you are long hours, and I count them one by one. I do not want to go away from you, but it is for you that I must make a strike. I would rather have you with me than have all the strikes in the world. I know, but we don't want to spend all our days in this God-forgotten wilderness, fighting famine and the strong cold.'' We want to go far away from all this, where there is music, and books, and life. You've got it coming, little girl, but first we must make a strike. And we will not be married until you make your strike?" The dark eyes looked wistfully into his, and Brent smiled. Strike or no strike, we will be married in the spring, he cried. AND IF THE STRIKE HAS NOT BEEN MADE, WE'LL MAKE IT TOGETHER. WILL WE BE MARRIED AT THE MISSION? NO, AT DAWSON. DAWSON, CRIED THE GIRL, AND I SHALL REALLY SEE DAWSON? BUT ISN'T IT VERY FAR? BRENT LAUGHED. YES, YOU WILL REALLY SEE DAWSON. "'and you won't see much when you see it, "'in comparison with what you will see "'when we quit the North and go back to the States. "'In the spring, you and Wananibish "'and Joe Pete and I will take a month's vacation. "'And when we come back, darling, "'we will have each other always.' "'But if you do not make a strike?' "'Questioned the girl. "'What then? "'Would you be happy here in the North with me?' sweetheart answered brent if i knew to a certainty that i should never make a strike that i should always live in these barons i would marry you anyway and call the barons blessed but i will make a strike it is for you and i cannot fail oh if i hadn't been such a fool the girl smiled into his eyes if you hadn't been such a a fool you would never have come to the barrens and i i would always have been just an indian hating the white man hating the world living my life here and there upon the lakes and the rivers in cabins and tepees with just enough education to long for the better things and with my heart bursting with pain and bitterness in the realization that those things were not for me "'It is strange how everything works out for the best,' mused Brent. "'The whys and the wherefores of life are beyond my philosophy. Sordid and twisted and wrong as they were, my Dawson days, and the days of the years that preceded them, were all but the workings of destiny to bring you and me together up here on the rim of the Arctic. "'It was a great scheme, little girl.' he smiled, suddenly breaking into a lighter mood, and the beauty of it is, it worked. But what I was getting at is this. It don't seem reasonable that after going to all that trouble to bring us together, and taking such liberties with my reputation, old man destiny is going to make us fill out the rest of the time punching holes in gravel, and snaring rabbits, and hunting caribou. That evening they said good-bye upon the edge of the clearing that surrounded the Indian encampment, and as Brent turned to go, he drew a heavy bag from his pocket and handed it to the girl. "'Keep this till I come back,' he said. "'It's gold.' "'Oh, it is heavy!' cried the girl, in surprise. Brent smiled. "'Weighs up pretty big now.' BUT WHEN WE MAKE OUR STRIKE, IT WON'T BE A SHOESTRING. BUT COME, ONE MORE GOODBYE, AND I MUST BE GOING. I'VE GOT TO PACK MY OUTFIT FOR AN EARLY START. ONE DAY, A WEEK LATER, BRENT STOOD WITH JOE PETE ON THE NORTHERNMOST RIDGE OF THE COPPER MOUNTAINS AND GAZED TOWARD THE COAST OF THE ARCTIC OCEAN. ALMOST AT THEIR FEET, BURIED BENEATH SNOW AND ICE, WERE THE BLOODY FALLS OF THE COPPER MINE, and to the northward, only snow. Brent was surprised, for he knew that the ridge upon which he was standing could not be more than ten or twelve miles from the coast, but he also knew that he could see for twenty miles or more, and that the only thing that met the eyes was a gently undulating plain of snow, unbroken by even so much as a twig or a bush, or a hillock worthy the name. Never, he thought, as his glance swept the barren treeless waste, had eyes of mortal man beheld its equal for absolute bleak desolation. A cry from Joe Pete caused him to concentrate his gaze upon a spot toward which the Indian pointed, where, dimly discernible, a dark object appeared against the unbroken surface of the snow. The steel-blue haze, the cold fog of the North, obfuscated its outlines as it destroyed perspective so that the object may have been five miles away or twenty it may have been the size of a dog or the size of a skyscraper in vain the two strained their eyes in an endeavor to make it out in the first gloom of the early darkness it disappeared altogether and the two made their way to the frozen surface of the river where in the shelter of a perpendicular wall of rock, they made their camp and kindled a tiny fire of twigs they had collected the day before from the last timber on the copper mine, at a creek that runs in from the eastward. For two days, holding to the surface of the river, the two had threaded the transverse ridges that formed the Copper Mountains it was brent's idea to mush straight to the northernmost ridge and work back slowly stopping wherever practicable to prospect among the outcropping ledges he had planned also to burn into the gravel at intervals but he had not foreseen the fact that the mountains lay north of the timber line so the burning had to be abandoned at daylight they again climbed the ridge the cold fog had disappeared, and as Joe Pete, who was in the lead, reached the summit, he gave voice to a loud cry of surprise. For in place of the indiscernible object of the day before, apparently only ten or twelve miles distant, and right in the center of the vast plain of snow was a ship, each mast and spar standing out clean cut as a cameo against its dazzling background. "'Brent even fancied he could see men walking about her deck "'and other men walking to and fro among a group of snow mounds "'that clustered close about the hulk. "'A whaler!' he exclaimed. "'One of those that Johnny Claw said wintered up here.' "'For a long time, Brent watched the ship, "'and covertly Joe Pete watched Brent. "'At length the white man spoke. Reckon we'll just mush over there and call on 'em. Neighbors aren't so damned common up here that we can afford to pass them by when we're in sight of 'em. Dat better, maybe so and don't go where we ain't got no business. Maybe so dat goddamn Johnny Claw, she give you some more hooch, eh? That breed gal, she damn fine woman. She ain't like that brent laughed a trifle nervously i don't reckon there's any danger of that he answered shortly come on we'll harness the dogs and pull out there i'd like to see what kind of an outfit they've got and as long as we're this near it would be too bad not to go to the very top of the continent joe pete shrugged and followed brent down to the river where they broke camp harnessed the dogs and struck out over the plain. The wind-packed snow afforded good footing and the outfit pushed rapidly northward. Brent was surprised at the absence of a pressure ridge at the shoreline, but so flat was the snow-buried beach that it was with difficulty that he determined where the land left off and the sea ice began the whaler he judged to be frozen in at a distance of three or four miles from shore. The figures of men could be plainly seen now, and soon it became evident that their own presence had been noted, for three or four figures were seen to range themselves along the rail, evidently studying them through a glass. While still a mile or two distant, the figures at the rail disappeared below deck, but others moved about among the snow-mounds in the shelter of the vessel's hull. Upon arriving at the mounds, which proved to be snow-igloos such as used by the Eskimos, Brent halted the dogs and advanced to where two men, apparently oblivious to his presence, were cutting up blubber. "'Hello!' he greeted. "'Where's the captain?' One of the men did not even look up, the other presenting a villainous hairy face nodded surlily toward an ice-coated ladder wait here said brent turning to joe pete till i find out whether this whole crew is as cordial to strangers as these two specimens at the words the man who had directed brent to the ladder raised his head and opened his lips as if to speak but evidently thinking better of it he uttered a sneering laugh and went on with his cutting of blubber. Brent climbed the ladder and made his way across the snow-buried deck, guided by a well-packed path that led to a door upon which he knocked loudly. While waiting for a response, he noticed the name Belva Lou painted upon the stern of a small boat that lay bottom-side up upon the deck. Knocking again, he called loudly, and, receiving no reply, opened the door and found himself upon a steep flight of stairs. Stepping from the dazzling whiteness of the outside, the interior of the whaler was black as a pocket, and he paused upon the stairs to accustom his eyes to the change. As the foul air from below filled his lungs, it seemed to Brent that he could not go on. The stench nauseated him. The vile atmosphere reeked of rancid blubber, drying furs, and the fumes of dead cookery. A tiny lamp that flared in a wall pocket at the foot of the stairs gave forth a stink of its own. Gradually, as his eyes accorded to the gloom, Brent took cognizance of the dim interior. The steep, short flight of steps terminated in a narrow passage, that led toward the stern whence came the muffled sound of voices descending he glanced along the passage toward a point where a few feet distance another lamp flared dimly just beyond this lamp was a door and from beyond the door came the sound of voices he groped his way to the door and knocked there was a sudden hush a few gruffly mumbled words and then a deep voice snarled, "'Who's there?' "'Just a visitor,' announced Brent, stifling a desire to turn and rush from that fetid hole out into the clean air, but it was too late. The voice beyond the door commanded thickly, "'Come in, and we'll look you over.' For just an instant Brent hesitated, then his hand fumbled for the knob, turned it, and the narrow door swung inward he stepped into the box-like apartment and for a moment stood speechless as his eyes strove to take in the details of the horrid scene the stinking air of the dank passage was purest ozone in comparison with the poisonous fog of the overheated unventilated room he felt suddenly sick and dizzy as he sucked the evil effluvia into his lungs The thick, heavy smoke of cheap tobacco, the stench of unbathed humans, the overpowering reek of spilled liquor, the spent breath from rum-soaked bodies, the gaseous fumes of a soft coal stove, and the odor from an oil lamp that had smoked one side of its chimney black. "'Shut the door. Coal costs money. What the hell you trying to do? Heat the whole Arctic?' "'Who be ye anyhow? And what do you want?' Mechanically, Brent closed the door behind him as he gazed into the leering eyes of the speaker, who sat with two other men and a partially clad Eskimo woman, at a table upon which were set out a bottle and several glasses. Before Brent could reply, the man across the table from the speaker leaped to his feet and thrust out his hand. Through the gray haze of smoke, Brent recognized Johnny Claw. "'Well, if it ain't my old friend ace in the hole,' cried the hooch runner. "'It's all right, Cap. Best sport on the Yukon.' Ignoring the fact that Brent had refused the proffered hand, Claw leered into his face. "'Ace in the hole. Let me make you acquainted with Cap Jenkins, captain of the Belva Lou damn good sport too an ace scroggs mate both damn good sports belvelu fetches out more oil and bone in any of em an cap'n ain't afraid to spend his money glad you come along welcome to stay long as you like ain't he cap the captain lowered a glass from his lips and cleansed his overhanging mustache upon the back of a hairy hand sure he growled surlily didn't know he was a friend o yern sit down the room contained only four chairs and as he spoke the man with a sweep of his hand struck the clooch from her chair and kicked it toward brent who sank into it heavily and stared dully at the clooch who crawled to a corner and returned the stair with a drunken loose-lipped grin upon her fat face brent shifted his glance and upon a bunk beyond the table he saw another clooch lying in a drunken stupor her only garment a grimy wrapper of faded calico was crumpled about her exposing one brown leg to the hip schooled as he had been to sights of debauchery by his service with cutter malone brent was appalled sickened by the scottish degeneracy of his surroundings with unsteady hand, the mate slopped some liquor into a glass and shoved it toward him. "'Swaller that,' he advised with a grin. "'You're gettin' white around the gills. Comin' right in out of the air, it might seem a little close in here at first. The fumes arising from the freshly spilled liquor smelled clean, the only hint of cleanliness in the whole poisoned atmosphere of the cabin. He breathed them deeply into his lungs, and for an instant the dizziness and sickness at his stomach seemed less acute. Maybe one drink, one little sip, would revive him, counteract the poison of the noisome air, and stimulate him against the dull apathy that was creeping upon him. Slowly his hand stole toward the glass, his fingers closed about it, and he raised it to his lips. Another deep inhalation of its fragrance, and he drained it at a gulp. "'Didn't know we had no neighbors,' ventured the captain, filling his own glass. "'What you doing up here?' "'Prospecting,' answered Brent. "'The Copper Mountains. I saw your vessel from the ridge and thought I would come over and see what a whaler looks like. The strong liquor was taking hold. A warm glow gripped his belly and diffused itself slowly through his veins. The nausea left him and the olid atmosphere seemed suddenly purged of its reek. "'Well,' grinned the captain, "'the Belvaloo ain't what you'd call no floatin' palace, but she's ahead of most whalers. And after Johnny gets through hornin' round amongst the husky villages, and fixes up with a wife apiece we manage to winter through right comfortable me and asa stays on board and the rest of the crew builds a igloos but here's me running off at the head and you might spill it all to the mounted not him laughed claw him and i ain't always pulled what you might say together but he's square kill you in a minute if he took a notion but he'd go to hell before he'd snitch have another drink ace in the hole twon't hurt ye none only rum and water weak before he knew it the glass was in his hand and again brent drank after that he took them as they came the bottle was emptied and tossed into the corner where the drunken clooch recovered it and holding it to her lips greedily sucked the few drops that remained in the bottom another bottle was produced and brent his brain fired by the raw liquor, measured glasses drink for drink never noticing that the same liquor served in the glasses of the other three for round after round of libations where's your camp asked claw as he refilled the glasses bloody falls answered Brent, waxing loquacious, bloody falls of the copper mine, where old Samuel Hearn's Indians butchered the Eskimos. "'Butchered the Eskimos?' exclaimed Claw. "'What do you mean, butchered? I ain't heard bout no huskies bein' killed. And who in hell's Sam Hearn? I've been round here off and on for a long while, and I ain't never run across no Sam Hearn.' What be you handin us? You oughta start a newspaper. Brent laughed uproariously. No, Claw. I reckon you never ran across him. This happened over a hundred years ago, seventeen seventy-one, July thirteenth, to be exact. Asa Scroggs grinned knowingly. Man can lap up a hell of a lot of ideas out of a bottle of hooch, he opined mostly it runs to philosophy or fightin or poetry or singin or religion or woman or sad memories but this here stale news idea is a new one but go ace in the hole did the mounted get sam for his murdersome massacres that was a hundred years before the mounted was thought of answered brent eyeing scroggs truculently as his inflamed brain sought hidden insult in the words. "'I always knowed I was born too late,' laughed Claw, who, noting the signs of approaching trouble, sought peace. "'This here'd be a hell of a fine country if it weren't for the mounted. But say, ace in the hole, you doing any good? Struck any color?' Brent forgot Scroggs and turned to Claw no not to speak of just about made wages well continued the hooch runner you had a pretty fair sack of dust when you come in what do you say we start a little game of stud just the four of us nothing doing answered brent shortly i'm off of stud off of stud exclaimed the other how in hell do you ever expect to get even Stud owes you more dust than you can pile on a sled." Brent drank a glass of rum. The game can keep what it owes me. And besides, I left my dust in camp, except a couple of ounces or so. "'Your finger bet goes with me,' assured Claw. "'Everybody's wouldn't, by a damn sight, but your'n does. What do you say?' "'My word is good in a game, is it?' asked Brent. "'Good as the dust, in one or out of one,' promptly assured Claw. "'Well, then, listen to this. I gave my word in the presence of the man who staked me for this trip that I would never gamble again, so I reckon you know how much stud I'll play from now on.' "'God Almighty!' breathed Claw, incredulously. "'And the game owing you millions? "'Well, have a drink on it, anyway.' Claw refilled Brent's glass and thrust it into his hand with a wink at the captain, for he had been quick to note that the liquor and the hot-fetid air of the room was making Brent drowsy. His eyes had become dull and heavy-lidded, and his chin rested heavily upon the throat of his parka. "'Ain't happened to run into a little bunch of Injuns up the river, have you?' asked the man, as Brent gagged at the liquor. "'No,' answered Brent, drowsily. "'No Injuns in Copper Mountains. Nothing in the mountains. Nothing but snow.' Gradually his eyes closed, and his head rolled heavily to one side the drunken clooch rose to her knees and with a maudlin giggle seized brent's half-empty glass and drained it with a curse the captain kicked her into her corner and turned to claw with a suggestive motion slit his gullet and we'll slip him down a seal hole with some scrap iron on his legs he's probably lying about leaving the dust in camp claw shook his head not him he opined search him first the captain and the mate subjected the unconscious man to a thorough search at the conclusion of which scroggs tossed a small lean gold sack upon the table probably all he's got left anyhow he growled in disgust let's just wait him and slip him through the ice the way he is tain't so messy "'Not by a damn sight,' objected Claw. "'It's just like I told you when we was watching him through the glass. "'He's got anyways close to a hundred ounces. "'I seen it when he paid me for the hooch, like I was telling you. "'Well, we can backtrack him to his camp, "'and if we can't find it we can put the hot irons to the Indian's feet till he squeals. "'The Indian don't know where it's at.' argued Claw contemptuously. "'He's too damn smart to trust a siwash, and you bet he's got it cached where we couldn't find it. He wouldn't leave it around where the first bunch of huskies that come along could lift it, would he?' "'Well,' growled the captain, "'you're so damn smart, what's your big idea?' "'We got to let him go.' put back his little two ounces so he won't suspicion nothin'. Then when he wakes up, I'll slip him a bottle of hooch for a present, and he'll hit for camp and start in on it. It won't last long, and then you and me and Scroggs'll happen along with more hooch to sell him. When he digs up the dust to pay for it, I'll tend to him. You two get the engine, but he's mine. I've got a long score to settle with him, and I know if I'd waited long enough my time would come. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Milleen